Turn to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 9. I'm going back now. I've been all over the book. But this is a very, very powerful book of the Bible. And I would suggest that if you are struggling or you're distracted or you're looking for some new revelation or you're looking for more excitement in your Christian life, I would encourage you to study this book because it'll bring you front and center to the person of Jesus in a way maybe you've never seen before. Timothy Keller in his book, The Reason for God, takes a novel by Robert Louis Stevenson, very famous author, wrote Treasure Island, you know, Kidnap, number of books, but one of the books he wrote, very famous book, was called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Probably seen the movie, maybe read the book. And he shares in this book, and I don't know if you realize it, but Robert Louis Stevenson was actually a Christian. And he had a way of writing to really help us understand the essence of the human struggle. Because all of us struggle. And he talks about how Dr. Jekyll comes to realize that he is a mixture of both what is good and what is evil. His bad nature is holding his good nature back, he believes. And so he has many great aspirations, but he has a difficulty in following through and doing the things he knows he should be doing. As a matter of fact, he kind of reflects the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. In verse 15, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I, I have a book in my library that says, Why I Do the Things I Do. In other words, why do we do some of the things we do? Why do we say some of the things we say? Sometimes we're surprised at ourselves. We wonder, why is it that I, you know, maybe I feel petty or, you know, or I have to put a little dig in, or I'm trying to, I lower somebody else because I want to kind of somehow jack myself up. And we do all kinds of interesting things. And Paul goes on to say, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. In other words, there's a, a principle and a power in my life that is subtle and dynamic, and it's at work, and sometimes it overpowers me, and I end up doing the wrong thing. I feel pressure. I tell a lie. It's amazing. Sometimes we do little selfish things. You know, true? Yes. So there's a greater power at work in our life, controlling our lives. And so what does Dr. Jekyll do? He comes up with a potion that can somehow separate out his two natures. His hope is that his good self, which which actually comes out during the day, will be free from the influence of evil, and he will be able to realize his goals. However, when he takes the potion one night, his bad side comes out, and he's far more evil than he ever expected. And as he writes, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, ten times more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought in that moment delighted me like wine. Edward Hyde's every act and thought is centered on himself. And Timothy Keller says this, um, Edward Hyde is so named, now I don't know if you guys catch this, H-Y-D-E, what, what is he basically saying? It's H-I-D-E. This is the part we want to hide. 
This is the part we don't want people to see about ourselves. The hidden stuff. So Mr. Hyde is so named not because he's hideous, but because he is hidden. He thinks solely of his own desires. He doesn't care in the slightest who he hurts in order to gratify himself. So Stevens is saying that even the best of people hide from themselves what is within an enormous capacity for egotism, self-absorption, and a regard for their own interests above others. The focus on self is at the foundation of so much of the misery in our world. That's our great problem. We're self-centered. It's the reason that the powerful and the rich are often indifferent to, indifferent to the plight of the poor. It's the reason for most of the violence, the crime, and the warfare in our world. It's at the heart of most cases of family disintegration. In other words, you know, a lot of times divorce is nothing. If you get right to the very core, it's about me. It's about selfishness. We hide from ourselves our self-centered capacity for acts of evil, but situations arise that act as a potent, and out they come. Isn't that true? We get a crisis in our life, and we go, I can't believe I did that. Or, you know, we're under a lot of pressure, and now all of a sudden we start acting and behaving in a way that's not normally the way we behave. But I'm convinced God allows those things to reveal to us some of the hiddenness some of the junk that we've buried deep within and we've repressed the stuff. But it's there. Once Jekyll realizes that he has this capacity for evil, he decides to clamp down heavily on this terrible self-centeredness and pride at the core of his being. In a sense, he gets religion. Boy, we ever do that. You know, we turn a new leaf. We make decision to be better. You know, people do this all the time, by the way. I've got to make up for all the bad I've done. He solemnly resolves not to take the potion anymore. He devotes himself to charity and good works, partially as an atonement for what Edward Hyde has done and partially as an effort to simply smother his selfish nature with acts of unselfishness. And so he throws himself doing all these good things to somehow compensate for the bad he's done. However, one day, Dr. Jekyll is sitting on a park bench and he's thinking about all the good he's been doing and how much better of a man he is and despite what Edward Hyde had done. And then he's thinking about how much better he is than other people. And as Stevenson writes in his novel, I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past. And I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful. You know how earnestly in the last months of the last year I labored to relieve suffering. You know how much was done for others but as I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing act of goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect, at that very moment, that vain glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most dreadful shudder. And I looked down and I was once more Mr. Hyde. This is a deadly turn of events. For the first time, Dr. Jekyll becomes Mr. Hyde involuntarily without the potion. And this is the beginning of the end. Unable to control his transformations any longer, Dr. Jekyll kills himself. And Stephen's insight here is, I think, profound. Why would Jekyll become Hyde without any taking of potion? 
Like so many people, Jekyll knows he's a sinner. So he tries desperately to cover his sin with great piles of good works. And yet his efforts do not actually shrivel his pride and self-centeredness. They only aggravate it. They lead him to superiority, self-righteousness, pride, and suddenly, look, Dr. Jekyll becomes Hyde, not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. You see, sin and evil are self-centeredness and pride that leads to oppression against others. But there are two forms of this. One form is being very bad and breaking all the rules, and the other form is being very good and keeping all the rules and becoming self-righteous. There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. The first is by saying, I'm going to live my life. Okay, I'm just trying to find it. I'm going to live my life my way, the way I want. The second is avoiding Jesus by avoiding my sin. As Flannery O'Connor writes, if you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless and save you, then ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, model, and helper, but you're avoiding him as Savior. You are trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. That's a very powerful thought. That, ironically, is a rejection of the gospel of Christ. It is a Christianized form of religion. It is possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules than by breaking them. Remember what had happened in the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son? Remember that story? Two boys. Older son, younger son. Younger son goes out and does, breaks all the rules. The older son stays home and he keeps all the rules. Remember that? He's doing what supposedly the father wants him to do. Meanwhile, the father, you know, looking for the younger son. And what is finally revealed to him, the older brother, when his younger brother comes home and the father throws a party for this younger brother, the older brother is really upset. Remember that? He's indignant. He wasn't here all that time, and the father had never thrown a party for him. He was angry and would not join the celebration. He was just as lost to the father while living in the father's house, keeping the rules, than the lost son ever was, because he never knew the father. And why is that so challenging? Both religion in which you build your own identity on your moral achievements and, and no religion, in which you build your identity in some secular pursuit or relationship are ultimately spiritually identical courses to take because they are both self-centered and sinful. Self-salvation through good works <clears throat> may produce a great deal of moral behavior in your life, but inside you are filled with self-righteousness, cruelty, and bigotry, and you are miserable. You're always comparing yourself to other people, and you're never sure you're being good enough. Isn't that kind of sad? If you're the kind of person, you're always looking around, you're always measuring yourself without another person, maybe what's wrong is you've never come to the place where you've forgotten about yourself, and you're just trusting Christ. And then it doesn't matter what people are doing and not doing. You're, you have a peace in your heart. 
Because you're doing what you know is the right thing to do, and that's trust Christ yourself. The good news... Let me go back here. You and I can never deal with our own hiddenness, our own self-absorption through moral law, by trying to be a good enough person through an act of our will. You need a complete transformation of the very motives of the heart. The devil, if anything, prefers Pharisees, which are men and women who try to save themselves. They're more unhappy than either mature Christians or irreligious people, and they do a lot more spiritual damage. Isn't that the truth? And isn't it interesting that Jesus connected more with sinners than he did with Pharisees? As a matter of fact, the only people he criticized were the Pharisees, the people who were saving themselves. You see, the good news is not to people who are saving themselves. The good news is to people who finally come to the awareness that they're a sinner and they need a savior. Do you know what the great challenge in our country is today? Most people don't see a need for a savior. That's why it's so hard to present the gospel in Canada because most people think they're okay. Most people don't see a need for any sort of transformation in their life because, well, we don't, we're doing okay. We're, we're not bad. We're good people. And it's very difficult to bring good news to people who don't seem to need or think they need a message of good news. That's why it's become so difficult. People have become self-reliant. We have all kinds of organizations today where we can help people where we don't have to be literally transformed by a power outside of ourselves. But let me just tell you that sin is so powerful. It doesn't matter how much saving of yourself you're doing. It is actually a principle and a power that's greater than any other power on this planet. I can prove that to you because every human being that's living is eventually dying. And because of that, because sin is the power that brings us to both moral and spiritual death. So let us not fool ourselves. There's nobody in this room that can save themselves. There's nobody in this room that'll be good enough. There's nobody outside of this room. There's nobody in our country that can literally live such an exemplary life that they don't need Christ as their Savior. And we need to hear that. We need to understand that. Later in the book, Keller reminds us that the primary symbol of Christianity has always been the cross which speaks of the death of Christ for our sins. It's at the very heart of the gospel. Increasingly, however, what the Christian church has considered good news is considered by the rest of our culture as bad news. In other words, why would Jesus have to die is a question that I hear from people. Why couldn't God just forgive us? You ever had somebody ask you that? I've had this question asked me, by the way. Why couldn't God just forgive us? Great question, because someone has to pay the consequences for sin. That's the answer. Sin always produces consequences. It produces hurt. It produces sorrow. It produces suffering. Someone has to absorb the consequences. Somebody has to pay the price. Sin always produces these things. The good news is that Christ has done what we could not do for ourselves. He saves us from our sin. One of the great temptations with, what, uh, with people with religious background often falls into is that we try harder to be good. How many know that's something people try to do? 
We try harder to be good. Trying to do the right thing in order to be accepted by God and to be loved by others. But we eventually come to the realization that the famous novelist Robert Louis Stevenson reveals in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that within each heart is a capacity for sin. But what to do about it is the core issue. Religion is a human attempt to please God, to do His will in our own strength. We try and obey God and therefore think that we are accepted by Him. Rather, the principle of the gospel is that we are accepted by God because of what Christ has done for us. And when we accept Christ, we accept His sacrifice on our behalf. And then out of that relationship flows obedience. It's what we're putting our trust in. In the one case, we put our trust in ourselves to be good enough to be accepted by God. But in the other case, we know we're never going to be good enough. And therefore, we trust God to be accepted by Him. That's really freeing, folks. To know I'm never going to be good enough. And I just trust in Christ's sacrifice for me. It's just that simple. We're the ones that are complicating it. So today, I want to take a look at, I think, the very heart of the book of Hebrews. I think this is so, so great. You know, it's, it's blowing my mind today all the things Christians get into that are really counterproductive. All the garbage we come up with, you know, we have all of these methods to try to help people out. All of these ideas, all of these books that are being written, and some of them are so crazy, and some of the stuff that we get into as Christians, I just shake my head and I go, why don't we just read the book? Why don't we just go back and, and you know, if you're, you know, like a lot of people, you know, we're going back to the Old Testament, we're getting into be, you know, to the ceremonies, and I'm going, you got to read the book of Hebrews. When you read the book of Hebrews, what it'll do for you is show you that it's Jesus alone. It's Christ alone. And I want to show you that today. So we're going to turn there to chapter 9. And I want to take a look at the first, last part of chapter 9, the first part of chapter 10. We're going to discover something of the, sup the supreme greatness of Jesus. You know, my prayers today, we'll have a new revelation, a deeper, not a new, but a deeper revelation. Maybe new for some of you. Maybe you'll get an aha moment. You go, I finally get it. I finally understand it. The superiority of Jesus Christ to everything else. The first truth is simply the superiority of Christ's sacrifice for us. His sacrifice is superior. Jesus' one sacrifice was better than all the Old Testament sacrifices put together. Because you see, in the Old Testament, they had to keep sacrificing over and over and over and over again. Daily they were sacrificing. And I love the way the writer of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 20, he says this, you know, that there's a need for sacrifice, there's a need for blood to cleanse from sin, and he goes, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep, verse 20 of chapter 9. In the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's an argument. Why did Christ have to die? Couldn't he just forgive? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In other words, somebody 
have to pay the consequence. The Old Testament sacrifices are actually only a shadow of the true sacrifice. Let me give you a kind of a brief overview of the history of the nation of Israel and what God was trying to do in and through them. God chose a people who were in slavery. He led them out with a powerful deliverance. Remember that? Plagues, ten plagues in the land of Egypt. And then the shedding of blood, the blood being put over the doorposts, the death angel of judgment passes over. It's now called the Passover. And it's that expression that delivers them out of the nation. Isn't that powerful? It wasn't all the other plagues. It was that particular moment. Then they come into the wilderness, and they, they come into the wilderness because God's calling them there so he can reveal himself to them in the wilderness. I could stop here and say, we all need wilderness experiences in our life in order for God to reveal himself to us. And what do you and I want deliverance from? The wilderness. Come on now. Isn't that true? How many here can say, Pastor, that's totally honest. I don't like wilderness experiences. I don't like difficult experiences. I don't like challenging moments. I don't like crisis in my life. And yet, those are the very things that God utilizes to reveal himself to us. It says, he revealed himself to them on Mount Sinai where law was given, a tabernacle was built, and the priesthood was established. And folks, you need to understand something. The priesthood represents what? It represents mediatorial access to God. In other words, that you and I can now come into God's presence. We need these mediators to bring us into God's presence. And so we have a priesthood established in the Old Testament. Keep that in your mind. Very important thought. All of these things were to teach God's people truths about the nature of God, but now as we read in the book of Hebrews, they were only a shadow and not the true substance. They were like reading a book. The difference between reading a story and living a story. I mean, there's a big difference. One's fantasy and one's reality. One can talk about reality, but it's not necessarily reality. I mean, you can talk about the jungles in a book, and you can talk about the heat and the sweat and the dangers. How many know that's far different than being in the jungle? Big difference. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. You should put a highlight under that verse. Because what that's basically saying is all of the old covenant is all pointing to the new. Everybody get that? So don't go back there and go, oh, we got to go back there and live out all the things that the old covenant is saying. I go, no, it's not. That's just a shadow. The new covenant is the reality. Now the writer points out that even the animal sacrifices were only pointing to a great and better sacrifice to come. Go back to chapter 9, verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. In other words, the tabernacle was just a copy It was to represent the heavenly tabernacle. It was to represent the very presence of God. It was all representative. Okay? It's not the reality. He goes on to say, 
He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. I could go and again, again, and again, and again. No. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what we need to understand is that when these priests would daily come and offer sacrifices, what are they reminding the people of? Sin. When Jesus came and died once and for all, what does it remind us of? That he took away sin. That's a beautiful thought. So what he's basically arguing, that writer is arguing here is simply this, that if you live under the old covenant, you're constantly reminded of your sinfulness. But Jesus, because he only died once, he literally has taken away our sin. Praise God. And not only that, in another text it says what the blood and bulls and calves could not do, which was to remove the consciousness of sin. You see, these people lived under condemnation. They lived under guilt. They were constantly being reminded of their sinfulness. Christ came to remove even the consciousness and the condemnation of sin so that Paul could later write, therefore now we are under no condemnation. We have been freed from the guilt and the consciousness of sin so that we can live in a new freedom. It is beautiful. Do you know how many people today are living in shame? How many people today are buried in addictions because they're trying to somehow know the pressure and the pain and the sorrow of guilt and shame in their life? I want to declare to you, Jesus removes it all. He removes it. That is powerful. That is so amazing to me. It is so glorious to get a hold of this thing. Now, maybe we don't quite get it yet. Let me, let me paint a different picture. You're a Jewish person, and Jesus hasn't come yet, and so you now come to the great day of atonement. The seventh day of the month, and the tenth day, there was a feast. It was the only day that you had to afflict yourselves. That's a nice word for fasting. Do you know under the Old Testament, you were compelled to fast one day a year? The rest were non-compulsory fasts, okay? But you were required one day a year to fast. It was on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, this is what would happen. The high priest would come, and he would sacrifice for the sin of the nation and for himself, because he was a sinner. And then they would have, you know, two, this is all kinds of imagery here. They would do the, the, the you know, the two goats. High priest would lay his hand on the one goat, confess the sin of the nation, do it on the other goat. One they would kill, the other they would send into the wilderness. It was called the scapegoat. How many know we kind of pick up on this analogy and we use the term in our own language, you're a scapegoat. What do we mean by that? That means you're getting blamed for something you don't deserve to be blamed for. And Jesus Christ is our scapegoat. He's taken on us, on himself, all of our sin. He's, ta he's taken the blame for us. He's the scapegoat. He goes into the wilderness. The other 
goat was killed. And the high priests, you know, there was, they were killing goats, they were killing sheep, they were killing cows. I mean, there's a lot of killing going on. It's a bloody religion. The smell stunk. You know, there was carcasses they had to get rid of and disposed of. It was a messy institution. I can tell you that right now. There was nothing nice about this because it was trying to show us the, 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 the deep despair of what sin creates. Sin always produces death. And so there, the high priest would come in and once a year he came into the most holy presence where he would take that blood and put it on the altar the tabernacle, there was a mercy seat and there had two gold cherubim angels bent over and looking down at the mercy seat. And he would come in once a year to put the blood on the mercy seat. And so when God looked down, he would look down and see the shedding of blood and he would not see what was underneath the mercy seat, which was what? The Ark of the Covenant, which had what inside of it? The law of God. And so he no longer saw the broken law of God he would only see the blood, and God would show mercy to the nation. But you know, it was a, they had an interesting thought. The high priest would come in, he'd have a robe on, and he'd have bells around the hem of his robe. And so he would walk in, and he would, you know, he'd be making noise as he walked in. And they actually had a rope tied around his waist. You go, why did they do that? Because, you know, if God got upset and didn't forgive the people, the high priest could have dropped dead inside there, the most holy place. And no one's going in there to get him because that's the presence of God. They would have just pulled him out. And so what they were looking for was that the high priest would come out alive. That was pretty important to these guys. How many can see that? And in their mind, when the high priest came out, it said that God had accepted the sacrifice and they were forgiven. Are we getting a picture? Do you know Christ's resurrection is really the declaration that the Father accepted Christ as the perfect sin offering? He came back to his disciples alive. He was seen by up to 500 people at a time. Now in light of that picture, listen to what the writer says about Christ acting as our high priest, bringing himself as the sacrifice into heaven itself. Verse 28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Scholar Donald Guthrie says this, the second coming is said to be for salvation. The second coming is in fact the divine seal on the complete acceptance of the sacrifice previously offered. So now we have you know, a double picture. Not only did Christ come back to life, but now when Christ comes back from heaven, it's because he's accepting what has been accomplished. Obviously to the early disciples who were Jewish, the appearance of Jesus to the disciples after the crucifixion spoke of this powerful truth. Jesus' crucifixion speaks of the Father's acceptance. Therefore, the writer points out the sacrifice of Christ is superior to the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Look at verse 10, verse 1, the second part of it. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So if you want to go back under the Old Covenant, you will never, you'll never be made perfect. And by the way, made perfect doesn't mean moral perfection. What it means by that is you'll never reach 
your fulfillment. You'll never reach the goal. You'll never reach God's purposes for your life. If it could, it says, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshiper would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. How many are getting an idea that we have a better sacrifice? Anybody get that? How many are catching this? A better sacrifice. Listen, we have a better priesthood. We have Christ. And he makes a whole argument that he was not born of a tribe of the priest. Rather, he was like Melchizedek. It's a whole argument from Psalm 110, verse 4. Why is he bringing out all this stuff? Because priesthood speaks of being a mediator. We have a better mediator. We have, we have a better access to God the Father. See, in the Old Testament, there was a barrier to God. In the New Covenant, there's an openness to God. It's an awesome thing. We're under a better covenant. We need to understand that. We need to conclude from this that Christ's sacrifice makes us perfect before God. See, you, you'll never, you and I could never do enough good things to be accepted by God. How's that? But Christ makes us acceptable to God. That's why we should be excited about Jesus. We need to understand what he's done for us. We no longer have to live in guilt. Can I just say this? If you're living in guilt, you don't understand what Christ has done for you. That's true. I don't live in guilt. Now, have I done things in the past that I'm ashamed of before I was a Christian? Of course. But God's forgiven me. I understand my position in Christ. I understand that's before Christ. That's B.C., before Christ. You know, if any man be in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. A new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now, that doesn't mean what I did before didn't have consequences in my new life. But you know what it, what it means? It means that life is dead. That life no longer controls me. That life has no authority and power over me. That life does not shape my life. I have a new beginning. I have a new future. I have a new destiny. I have a new acceptance before God. I don't live in guilt and shame. There's a new freedom to live for God. What a powerful thing that is. So we can see that Christ's sacrifice is absolutely superior to the Old Testament sacrifices where we're just a foreshadowing or a type of what Christ was about to do. But let me move on to the second truth. The superiority... Now the surrender of the sacrifice. Do you know why that sacrifice in the Old Testament is not superior to Christ's sacrifice? Because the animals never chose to die. They were unwilling victims. How many know that's true? They were led to the slaughter. Listen to what Hebrews writes in chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. What is he talking about? Jesus was a willing sacrifice. Let me think that's powerful. He chose to die. He didn't have to die. Jesus could have, Jesus could have actually lived on this planet forever. 
he would have never had to die because he was sinless. He chose to die for us. That's an amazing thought. The animals didn't choose to die. They were led to the slaughter. Somebody chose for them. Jesus gave himself for us. How many know love is a choice? Love is a choice. Love expressed itself in action. God's expressed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His was an act of love. It was an act of total surrender. No wonder, you know, Paul writes, in light of what Christ has done, what should, it says, I beg you, brothers, to present your bodies what? A living sacrifice. Let me give you another, a willing sacrifice. We should be willing to give our lives. I had a little epiphany this week. Isn't it great when you're reading I was reading this commentary. I've been bemoaning it because it was so difficult. You know, very technical, lots of Greek, 736 pages, and I plowed my way through it. And I, I, you know, and I, it took me a long time. But I'll just say this. For this one truth, it was worth it. Instead of Abraham. Remember when Abraham left Ur? At that moment, he surrendered his past. Didn't he, did he not? He embarked on a new direction. He, God started to lead him to a city that he didn't, know, he didn't know where he was going. He obeyed God. Remember that? Remember Abraham did that? In that moment, he surrendered his past. He gave it up. Can I just say to some of you in this room, you need to surrender your past. You need to no longer allow your past to define who you are today. You need to be defined by what God's word says about you. And that will bring such freedom and liberty in your life. It's amazing. But think about what Abraham did when he offered up Isaac, or was willing to offer up Isaac. At that moment, he surrendered his future. Think about that. Because that, that was where all the promises laid, was with Isaac. And at that moment, he was willing to give up his future. He was willing to not only surrender his past, but he was willing to surrender his future. And I just went, whoa! This is so amazing that you and I need to come to this place in our life where we not only surrender our past, but we need to surrender our future. Some of you are worried about tomorrow. Some of you are filled with anxiety. You're concerned about how life will go. You're wondering how you're going to you know, survive maybe the older years or as you get older, you wonder if you'll have enough to be you know, cared for. You wonder, you know, how will I die? Or will I suffer a lot? Or all kinds of things. When we really sit down and start thinking about things, your mind can go crazy and you can be concerned about all of these things. And I want to declare to you this morning that if you surrender your future to God, know this, God is in your tomorrow. And you don't have to fear what tomorrow has because you know who holds your tomorrow. And he's, Mark reminded us this morning he's a good God. And I want to remind you he's a loving God. And he died for us. You know, he brought you this far. Why can't he bring you all the way? We need to trust him. It always comes down to that, doesn't it? Listen to the anguished cry of Jesus. This was the, probably the greatest challenge in his life, you know, he got to that point, and Luke tells us the story. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and he sweat with like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Knowing the price he was paying, Jesus surrendered. 
to the Father's purposes for his life. He willingly laid down his life for us. The final truth is the sanctifying impact of the sacrifice. Why this incredible sacrifice on our behalf? What's the purpose? Verse 10 of chapter 10, and by that will, listen to this, by that will, by Christ's will, by his willingness to lay down his life, we have been made holy. Yes! You and I don't make ourselves holy. God makes us holy by what he did. He makes me holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What makes us holy, I ask? Well, of course, the sacrifice of Christ. What does it mean to be holy? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that one. We have a lot of confusion on that point. We all have all kinds of crazy ideas, but essentially it means that we belong to God and that we live our lives as set apart to do His will. To be holy means that God has made you and I whole. Isn't that great? It speaks of, you know, the fragmentation and brokenness in our innermost being. God starts to reintegrate it. And we become an integrated person. And you know, we get a word from this Greek idea of being integrated. It's called integrity. How many know what a person of integrity is? A person of integrity is a person, I'll use computer language. What you see is what you get. Isn't that powerful? It means there's no guile. There's no, you know, you're, 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 what you're seeing, you're getting, this is it. There's no, there's no sham. There's no uh, hypocrisy. You're seeing the real deal. You're seeing authenticity. And you know our culture today, what are, what are people hungry for? We want things to be real. We want things to be authentic. We're tired of it. We've been promoted so much with an agenda. We've been shammed so long that what we want is just reality. Just give me a little reality. Give me some authenticity. You know? And I'm telling you, that's what God wants to bring into our lives. Verse 14 says, Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He sanctifies us. See, I'm using the word sanctify means being made holy. God is making you holy. God is making you whole. God is integrating you. God is re repairing us. God is making us like Christ. He's making us the man or the woman we should become. Hallelujah. This is awesome. You know, we think life is about, you know, I, I take care of my family, I feed my family, I, I achieve certain goals, then I go off and retire. That's a North American plan. Here's God's plan. God's plan is to take all of the things of life and all of the difficulties and challenges and all of it and use all of those things and move them all together and at the end of our life, we've become like Christ. That's the goal. And I want to declare it to you. When you trust Christ, you arrive at that goal. Isn't that awesome? I just got to learn to trust Christ every single day. I walk with him. That's what it means to, to, to trust Christ means to walk in the spirit. I'm using these terms interchangeably. When I'm trusting Christ every day, I'm walking in the spirit. See, as charismatic, sometimes we think it means all kinds of other things. I'm telling you what it means. It means to, to live for God, to walk in the spirit, to see God 
you know, moving inside of me and through me. And sometimes I'm surprised by what God is doing. Sometimes God is working in my life and I'm not even aware of it. Yeah, it's good for us. Because, you know, if we're always aware of everything we're doing, we'd have fat heads. I'm serious. And every once in a while when God sees we're a little discouraged and we don't think anything's happening in our life, every once in a while he just shows us a little, oh, by the way, I am working in your life. Oh, by the way, I am using you in this area. Just to keep us going. Because he doesn't want to do too much of it. It'll ruin us. Too much success ruins people, by the way, generally speaking. Right? We have a hard time with that. But let me close with this. A better sacrifice. A supreme sacrifice. A surrendered sacrifice. The purpose for a sanctified life. It's only when we're free from serving ourselves that we can really begin to enjoy life. Do you know that's true? You know why people are miserable in North America? It's because it's about them. Ouch. Come on now. Let's admit it. Only time I'm upset is I'm not getting my way. Oh, I'm, I'm really pushing buttons now. You, see, you know, I can talk about how great all this stuff is. Yeah, preach it, Pastor. But then when I stop and I say, oh, one of the reasons why we're not, doing, we're not so happy is because we're not getting our way, which is a sign of what? Selfishness. And when we're selfish, we're not enjoying life. How's that? Ouch. Nobody said ouch. Yeah. Self-made transformations don't work, as we've seen in the doc, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story. Eternal changes only come from trusting Christ. What he's done for us, joy and peace flow from it. Think of the message of the book of Hebrew, a better covenant. Why? A better priesthood, an eternal priesthood. And I've already said to you, it's because it shows access to God, a better sacrifice, not animals that are unwilling, but a willing sacrifice. And Hebrews says this, by the ministry of Jesus has received as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. Some of us are trapped in sin today. I want to give you the good news. Jesus has the power to set you free. I don't care how deep your addiction is. You know, our culture, we're just playing games a lot of times. We're just fooling ourselves. You know, we've got a lot of substitutes that are actually keeping people from the real answer. And the real answer is Jesus Christ. I can tell you, I will take somebody who's had a genuine encounter with Christ over any other human substitute. I can guarantee, I don't care how big and bad the problem is, that will change the human life more than anything else. That's what's needed in our culture today, folks. Whether we like to believe that or not, it's the truth. It has the power to cleanse us from sin and shame and guilt. It's not self-effort, it's complete surrender and trust in Christ our Savior. I already quoted this earlier. Let me finish it, Romans. He goes, how, you know, I, I, I'm not doing what I want to do, and then I do what I don't want to do. It's sin living in me. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death, this condition I'm in? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Paul's talking about now, yeah, he knew the law of God, but he was still a slave to sin. It's not enough just to know the law. Then he goes, therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Do you believe this verse? How many here believe this verse? You believe this verse. I believe this verse. I've experienced this verse. That's what we need today. And I'm gonna just say this. We can sit in a church, grow up in a church, live in the church all of our lives and live in human self-effort and try to be morally righteous and we can develop an elder brother's mentality, mentality and be very condemning, very judgmental against other people or we can literally be delivered by God's power We can live in the law of the spirit of life that has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. See, the law's not bad, but it's weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful nature, sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Let's stand. What amazing, amazing thing Jesus did for us. You know, I've been a Christian now almost 40 years. Not quite. And I'm going to just say this to you. I am more excited about Jesus than I ever have been in my entire life. I am more excited about what he has accomplished for us. I get more, I'm, 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 I'm just overflowing because everything about this Bible points you to one person. His name is Jesus. And you know, maybe you're here today and with every head bowed, you have never given your life to Jesus, but today you've heard about the one power that can set you free from yourself and from sin's hold on your life. It's the power of God that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And today, you want to surrender your life to him. Or maybe you're here today, you're a Christian. But you know what? You you, you heard the message, you maybe gave your life to Jesus, but you haven't really understood it or experienced it. And you're trying in your own self to please God. And it's not working. But today, I'm challenging you to come to him and say, Lord, just as I am, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to surrender to you and allow you to work in my life. And I'm going to just trust that your power in me is greater than the power of sin in my life. You've never experienced that, but today you want to. And that's you today. Just raise your hand. That is you today. Just raise your hand. Up high. Don't be ashamed. I want to pray for you today. I want to pray for you today. Okay? How many of you, you know, this is, you've never received Christ, first of all. Just raise your hand. I want to get, yeah, make sure, okay. It's great. I'm going to pray today that you're going to experience Christ as Savior. There's one person you can lower your hand. The rest of you, you're saying, I want to experience the power of Christ over sin. That's a different prayer. But I, I can see that happening. We've never had that real experience of sin being defeated in our life because of the 
power of the life-giving Christ and the life of the Spirit. And that you're not living in condemnation, but you're living in freedom. I want you to live in freedom. See, I'm your pastor. I care about you. I want you to, I want you to experience the fullness of the goodness of Christ. Because what will happen then is it, it revolutionizes your soul is what it does. It sets you free. And then you don't have to tell people to go tell people about Jesus. You'll want people to experience this life-transforming power that can set people free. See, that's what it did for me. That's why I'm a pastor. I, can't, I, I love preaching about Christ because I know how great he is. This is the greatest message on the planet. You know, we're not selling snake oil here, folks. This isn't another, you know, extremely well-educated scenario. No, everything just fits into play. This can be understood so simply a child can get it. You know, somebody with no education can get it. And yet some of the most brilliant people on the planet, great scholars, are still fathoming and marveling at this unscrutable mystery called God and everything he's done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. So Father, we pray today that you will set us free by the power of this good news of Jesus Christ. We receive you, Jesus, as our Lord and our Savior. And right now, we, we open our heart to you. We ask you to come into our life right now and set us free from the power of sin and shame and guilt. And Lord, I pray for a new freedom to flow into our lives and that we will experience the power of the living Jesus. We will experience the power of the Spirit of the living God, Lord, delivering us from condemnation and giving us a power to live and do what is right in your eyes. Lord, I pray that you'll create in every heart that is hearing my voice today a hunger and a desire for you such as they've never known before that will supersede any other desire on this planet, that we will get to know you more and more. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.